When I was a little boy, I, uh, I used to receive instruction from my father before I would leave the house. Uh, he would tell me all the time before I would go play with friends or go to a churching, church event, uh, he would say to me, remember who you are and whose you are. And it was a nice little instruction every single time before I left to re- be reminded of who I am representing. Uh, this charge was a charge to steer clear of danger and bad decisions. This charge was a charge to make sure that I uphold the Christian faith that my family uh, professed. Uh, this charge was also a charge to bear the very name that I held, the name of Robinson that I had been given by my father. And he charged me all the time. Perhaps the most memorable charge was my very first day that I was dropped off at college, if you're a new college student. Now, probably no, no new college students today. You're all home for Labor Day. But if you are a new college student, uh, as I started college at the University of Oklahoma, my father grabs me by the shoulders and he says, I want you to remember, Blair, who you are and whose you are. And that's stuck in my mind always uh, to make sure that I didn't embarrass my father and that I would live uh, faithfully to that calling. With a very similar and urgent charge, Paul's final exhortation to Timothy in this beautiful letter that we have been going to is for Timothy to remember who he is and whose he is who he belongs to. He has encouraged Timothy not to be like the false uh, teachers that were described in last week's passage, Uh, to, to be unlike them in every single way. These are the men that use the gospel for financial gain. And so before he closes his letter to him, he says, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of faith. I want you to remember who you are. And this has implications abounding. This letter was written specifically to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. But as we have seen throughout the letter, this is also for the church so that we may learn what it is to behave rightly in the household of God in chapter 3, verse 15, as Pastor Jared preached to us. And so as this letter concludes today, and Timothy is in scope, Recognize that the implications are for the people at Ephesus who Timothy oversees, as well as the implications are for us in what we are to do with this gospel. Church, we are in a battle. We're in a battle for the faith. We're in a battle for your own faith and for the faith for us collectively as the church that we may display rightly the testimony of the living Christ. Our prayer today ought to be that we do not approach this battle with apathy, but that we would be vigilant, that we would be diligent to hold to the faith that Christ has given to us, both for our own souls and for the souls of one another. And that is really the charge that we have. We do recognize that there is an enemy who is seeking uh, to devour us at every turn. We recognize that sin dwells within us and we must put these things to death. We must be vigilant in this war. And so that is the hope and the prayer today 
Look with me in verse 11 as I read the scripture over us collectively. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or even can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and uh, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I've titled this sermon, A Charge to Fight the Good Fight of the Faith. A charge for us Christians to fight the good fight of the faith. Each and every single week, our aim is to provide for you a main idea that will navigate us through the text to help you know kind of how it all fits together and also know where we're going This is the main idea that we talked through and prayed through as a preaching team this week. Because God has called us to eternal life, we are charged to fight the good fight of the faith as we await the arrival of our Lord Jesus. Because God has called us to eternal life, we are charged to fight the good fight of the faith as we await the arrival of our Lord Jesus. Jesus. There is a ton going on in this text, if you didn't notice when we read it. And so we're going to do our very best job today with the Spirit's work to unpack some basic applications for the church to be encouraged by this morning. There are three primary applications that I pray that we would receive in faith and hold to this morning as the church of the Lord Jesus. The first one can be found in verse 11. Notice when he says, but as for you, O man of God, the first application is this. In this fight of the faith that we are in, remember, Christian, that you have a new identity. Remember that you have a new identity. In verse 11, Paul basically changes the focus from the false teachers and he puts his focus right on Timothy by saying, but as for you, making stark distinction between Timothy and everybody else he's just described in verses three through 10. He says, but for you, 
Timothy, and he gives this incredible description as to who Timothy is. He says, O man of God. That phrase, O man of God, is not uncommon in the scriptures, but it is uncommon in the New Testament. Over 70 times in the Old Testament, the phrase, O man of God, is used. It's used to describe King David's faithfulness in leading Israel. It's uh, used to describe Moses as he's leading the people through the wilderness. It's used to describe Samuel and prophets like Elijah. But for to be used in the New Testament is quite a rarity. And so we recognize what Paul is doing even by this phrase, O man of God. He is calling to memory for Timothy, who he is, he, who he is and who he is. He is unlike the false teachers. He is different than them. He is set apart to do a different work called by the one true God to be about the gospel ministry. We've learned through the study of this book that he was a timid fellow, uh, that he was probably young in the faith. Uh, we learn these things about them, these characteristics about him. But when Paul uses a phrase like, oh, man of God, he is reminding Timothy that his identity is in another one who has captured him, one who has made him his very, very own. First Corinthians chapter uh, six, we see that you are not your own, Christian. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. When he uses a phrase like, oh man of God, he is giving him the identity of who Timothy belongs to and who Timothy has been cared for by, who has been plucked from the bowels of sin and into marvelous light by this wonderful God. You can imagine as a young pastor in Ephesus, more than likely very difficult times in the ministry for young Timothy, as he's reading this letter and reading these final exhortations, when he comes across the the phrase, O man of God, written by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you can rest assured that that encouragement reached into the very innards of his soul and strengthened him, reminded him of his identity. And so for us today, those of us who have proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, I pray that we are encouraged that our identity is different this morning. We are different people because of the work of God himself. This is something that cannot be done in and of ourselves. We don't know exactly how Timothy was seized by God. We don't know how God took up residency in Timothy. We know that he had a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother. Uh, We know that he had faith abounding in Acts chapter 16 when he was a young man. We don't exactly know how God seized him, but we know that God had seized him and made him his own and set him apart to do the work of the ministry. The first part of which is just keeping the faith The same is for us as well. Have we been seized by God? We must be seized by God before we're able to even begin to do the instructions that Paul is going to lay forward in this exhortation. If we think for one second that in the flesh we are able to handle the instruction that Paul is about to give, we are sorely mistaken. 
And so hear me loudly. We cannot do these instructions, these imperatives, apart from God taking up residency in our own being, giving us a new identity. If we do not know that, we're going to land somewhere very dangerous. So my question before we get into how to fight the fight of faith is this. Have you put your faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ himself? Have you believed on the resurrected Lord? Do you believe that Jesus has come and he actually died to atone for your sins? He was actually killed and put in a grave and he actually raised from the dead and he actually appeared to 500 people and actually ascended to the right hand of the Father and serves as high priest of heaven and is actually going to return again one day. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, then this fight is not for you. If you don't believe that, hear the appeal from the word of God this morning to believe it, by faith to believe it, so that you may enter this fight of faith. Has God taken up residency in you? When I was uh, growing up, the neighborhood that I grew up in had this beautiful house at the top of the hill and you had to pass the home to get to the neighborhood. That neighborhood was a huge neighborhood, and it was just developing basically through my entire childhood. And this home at the top of the hill was actually the model home. It was, it was beautiful. It was probably the best home in the entire neighborhood. It, it didn't have anyone living in it, but there was life in it from 9 to 5 every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as someone was trying to sell the property to inquiring clients. I remember the day that I drove by the house and there's actually someone that lived in it. You saw a jacket draped over a rocking chair on the porch. You saw cars parked in the driveway and bicycles on the sidewalk. You could see that the home now had residence in it and bringing forth life in it. The question is, is someone living in there but not taking up residency? Or have you had the God of the universe take up residency in your life? And the reason we must get to that question first is so that we can get to the second application from this text, which begins at the second part of verse 11. In the fight, be vigilant daily to fulfill your calling to eternal life. In the fight, we must be vigilant to carry out our calling to eternal life. That means we must be wide awake and alert to do these things, not because we are seeking God's approval, but because we have been approved by Christ Jesus himself. That is the motivation behind this. Look at the second part of verse 11 with me. Paul gives four imperatives for Timothy to live out in his life. And the first one is this. Timothy, you must flee these things. Flee these things, O man of God. What things is he referring to? Well, in order to, to know that, we must be a student of the text. And the text tells us in verses 3 through 10 that false gospel and false doctrine, anything but Christ is something that we should flee from. Using Christ in the gospel ministry for any sort of gain is something that we should flee from because we realize that Jesus Christ is the gain himself. We must flee from quarrels and dissensions and slandering sin, the teaching that was occurring in the church at Ephesus or amongst the city of Ephesus. 
Flee these things because these things are catching people on fire. Make sure that you do not love money because the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Timothy, O oh man of God, flee these things. The truth is the same for us. We are to flee these things. If any of these sins, if any of these things in the text mentioned in the verses above are any hint in our life, we are to run from them quickly. Sometimes running is the greatest way not to be defeated. Sometimes running is the greatest way not to be defeated. The word flee is fugo in the Greek. It means fugitive. It's where we get our word for fugitive, to run without abandon, to drop what you're doing and to go. We see in the text that we are to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. We are to fight against sin that dwells within us. When you hear the word flee, it's equivalent to the word fight. And as Christians, we are to flee and fight this sin. Romans 8, 13, perhaps, is the most, the loudest understanding of what we are to do with our sin. If you live by the flesh, you will die. He's writing this to the church. If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live Fleeing and fighting is only accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know, Christian, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that your faith, when your faith occurred, you were sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit until you see the face of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1. And so when you see sin subtly creep in in a thought, an opportunity to slander someone or an opportunity to engage in a lustful thought or an opportunity to partake in the trappings of this world. The Spirit brings to mind that we should flee and that we should run and that we should fight. Not fight for the approval of God. We've already been approved by God in Christ. But fight and flee because we know that the God who gave us life in Christ is worthy of our praise and it's good for our souls to flee from these dangerous things. Think back on a time when you have fled from sin. Make note of it. Remember how you behaved. You ran from something because you knew it was dangerous to you. It was going to trap you into something that you didn't want to be involved in. Perhaps a helpful application would be to check the sins that are in your life and to write down what sins you need to flee from and then flee. Run the other direction. When I was about nine years old, and my father was not at home, so he didn't tell me, remember who you are and whose you are, me and my buddies took a water balloon launcher and some water balloons and thought it was a good idea in my nine-year-old mind to shoot a water balloon at a moving car. And the first car that came around the corner, we were hiding between two houses, and unfortunately, I'm the one that was gripping the water balloon and released it. And this water balloon soared through the air, and it was, it was honestly majestic. <laughs> and as that car was coming around the corner, the driver happened to have his window down. 
I'm going to get a drink of water real quick. And that water balloon smacked the driver right in the face. And it burst everywhere. And us three nine-year-olds were like, he shoots, he scores, you know? Everything was fine until that driver stopped the car and got out to pursue me. He was older, and you already knew he was bigger, right? So he is running after me, and I take off in an absolute panic. I am running down my alley. I can, rem- I can remember it like it was. I'm running down my alley, and I take a left on the very first driveway that's in my view. And by God's grace, it was my backyard. And by God's further grace, it, my mom had opened up the garage door and I ran into my arms and she kept me from being pummeled by this guy. And if that was you, I am revealing my identity and I come in peace. <laughs> she kept me from danger. Here's the reality. Had I not run to my house, he would have found me and I would be in a lot of trouble. My first instinct was to pursue my home to run to my house to avoid danger. By God's grace, it happens. And it's actually exactly what Paul says right here in verse 11. Once you flee, he wants you to run to something. Run to safety. Look how he describes safety for us. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Christian, flee sin and run to these things. This is clearly understood as the objectives of the Christian life. We don't run to these disciplines or these virtues to be approved by God. We run to them because the very God that saved us and who dwells in us is glorified in these pursuits. So when I say, or when Paul says righteousness, he's not talking about imputed righteousness. Righteousness that's received by the death of Christ. He's talking about righteousness in the way that we conduct our thinking and our living. Are we pursuing how better to think about the gospel in this broken world? Are we pursuing what it looks like to live a godly life or to be filled with godliness? Are we devoted to the things that God is devoted to? Have we studied the character of God in such a way so that we could pursue the very attributes of God in our lives with the Spirit of God driving us and allowing us to pursue these things as we flee from sin? Are we building up our faith, practice in a deeper trust in God? Do we hold the scriptures of God high and lift it up because they are the revealed word of God of who God is and his very nature and his character? Do we trust his word? Do we trust his promises? Or are we leaning on our own unfaithfulness? Are we thinking about what makes sense in our own mind, in our own ration? Or are we pursuing what that faith looks like, believing God, more and more for our daily lives and our struggles and our victories, how to be a father and a husband, mother, wife, grandmother, all the applications of our life. Are we growing in our love for one another? Has the great affection of Jesus taken over your life and are you pursuing that? We can love because why? He first loved us and that drives us to want to love more. Love has no one better than this, that a friend would lay down his life for another friend. 
So as we study the Lord God and we worship the Lord God, we become uh, in relationship with him. We pursue him and all of his wonder, and then it spills over to the person right next to you. Are you loving them? Are you pursuing how to love them better, how to sacrifice for them better? These are things that we pursue by the grace of God. Steadfastness and perseverance amidst trials, amidst struggles, amidst sinful desires. Are we increasing or do we find ourselves in isolation more and more? Do we find ourselves not satisfied with the things of God because the things of the flesh are gratifying to us? Remain steadfast in these things, Paul says to Timothy. And therefore, he says them to us. Are we increasing with the way we treat one another? It's easy to love your best friend when all is well. It's hard to love your enemy who's against you. Are we increasing in kindness towards them? The way that Christ was kind towards us when we were alienated and hostile in mind. Are we pursuing these things by the grace of God? Remember, we don't pursue these things to be approved. We have already been approved in Christ, but we will pursue them because we have been approved in Christ. If you've ever read Thomas Chalmers' book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, uh, you know what I'll be talking about here. If you haven't, I would highly recommend you pick up that treaty. It is wonderful. I read it for the second time again this summer. He says this, the only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. It is therefore only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great, predominant and supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires in the only way that deliverance is possible. I assure you, I, I love my mom much more that day than shooting someone in the face with a water balloon. I assure you, I can love my king more and more and more because of everything he has provided for me in Christ. And therefore, the desire to flee the things that are destructive to my soul and to my flesh are easy to abandon, or that's the way that it ought to be. This is the fight that we're in right here. Paul says, how do we do these things? We're equipped with this, where the spirit of God is given to us and the word of God is the sword of the spirit and we've been given the word as well. How do we pursue these things? Well, we know that we pursue them by faith. That's Galatians 3, the entire chapter. Make note of it and return to it today. If you have time this afternoon, just read Galatians 3. As you think about, we don't live by the law, but we live by faith. And look at the third imperative with me, starting in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. We are to fight the good fight of the faith. We flee, we pursue, and then in the faith of that pursuit, we fight this fight with the same faith that we got into the fight with. The word in the Greek is where we get the word agonize. This is not easy. This fight of faith is a struggle because we are constantly confronted with our own depravity. All the things that we would rather desire than, than the Lord himself. But the fight is a fight to truly have a biblical worldview, to hold rightly the teaching of the gospel, to make sure that the way that we see the world is through the paradigm of the gospel itself. This is a fight of the faith. If we're not fighting that fight, then we've already succumbed to not fleeing to the temptations of this world. 
We are to fight the good fight of the faith the same way the word is used, the way an athlete prepares and fights in an athletic competition, the way a marathon runner struggles to get through the 26th mile. He's trained, he's disciplined, he's ready. He keeps moving forward, he keeps moving forward. Mile 13, it's hard. Mile 18, it's difficult. Mile 20 seems impossible, but he keeps on running the fight and he's driven by the very thing that made him start the race to begin with. And that's the desire to finish, to finish something in a much greater way than a marathon. This marathon called the Christian life We've got a beautiful thing that helped us start the race and a beautiful thing that's waiting for us at the end of the race. So therefore, we fight the good fight of the faith and we do so together. We don't just do it individually. It is a blessing from the Lord himself that you guys sit in next to one another, shoulder to shoulder, to encourage one another to fight this good fight. That's why we have ABFs. That's why we have D groups so that we remind each other we are to fight this good fight of faith. Our tendency is to isolate in the flesh. Our tendency is to stop maybe even doing wrong things when we do it in the flesh. Rather, we are to fight to see the world the way that Christ sees the world because we have the the God who's rescued us to allow us to see the things that we should in that right order. We are to pursue these virtuous things on a daily basis. In the language that he is using, this is a daily thing. This isn't a once-for-all thing that you did when you were eight years old and you got baptized. This is something that you do every single day, fighting the good fight of the faith, not to achieve salvation, but because salvation has been given to you. Hold on to this beautiful thing. And that's the fourth imperative. Look what it says in verse 4, or excuse me, verse um, 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the fourth imperative that Paul gives to Timothy and therefore to us is this word, take hold. It connotes the same tenacity in which we are to fight. But it has a different imperative attached to it. It's actually in the aorist tense, which means this, that the fight is to be fought. We are to take hold of this eternal life with the full expectation that it will be brought to completion. So it's not with hope that it's brought to completion, but it's from the idea that it will be brought to completion because he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. What an amazing imperative that we can hold on to this eternal life to which we've been called. It means this, hold tightly to Christ, hold tightly to the promises that Jesus has given to us. Uh, This is what we're to do. And it says that we were called to do this. Remember, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, and they come to me. You you didn't just find the shepherd. He found you and then he called you. And he brought you to himself. John 6, 44 says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. We've been drawn and we've called him to hold on to this eternal life to which we have been given. And that idea is not just a life that is to come. It's forming, it's formed today. How we're looking at eternal life forms us today, preparing ourselves to see the face of Jesus. So it's not just a promise that is to come. It's the life that you and I have right now because Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. Amen? Timothy, I'm sure like many of us, made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Most of us have done that inside of a church building amongst the church. Timothy more than likely did it inside of a Roman province 
having to declare in public that Jesus Christ is Lord, probably standing on stones that had engraved on them, Caesar is Lord. There is a good public profession that those in Christ have made that we are to hold on to. So as he continues these imperatives, we see that we flee and we pursue righteous things, that we fight the good fight of the faith and we hold on to the eternal life which is ours in Jesus Christ to which we didn't just make a silent profession, but we made a public one as ones who belong to him. The third application that I want us to see in the text today is is this. In this fight, we must be motivated by something also, something too. Be motivated to keep the commandment by by looking to by looking to the coming of King Jesus. Be motivated to keep the commandment by looking to the coming of King Jesus. This is the third primary application that we want to see in the text today. Part of what Paul was doing was to get Timothy to see of everything that God has done by making him a man of God and by letting him know that Jesus is coming again. So prepare yourself and and recognize with me that When Paul gives a charge, it's a different charge than anybody else. It's an apostolic charge. He has been tapped on the shoulder by Jesus himself to bring forth the gospel to the world. And so when he says these imperatives, and then he says, I charge you in the presence of God, he is amplifying everything he is saying to make sure that Timothy does not stop holding the confession that he has made holding to the eternal life that has been promised to him and keeping the ministry that he has been entrusted with. This is a loud charge, and and Timothy would recognize that. Here's the reality, church. The church is to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts chapter 2. If this is the way that apostles teach, then we would do well to hold to this also. We're going to get to what that commandment is in a second, but look with me very quickly. I charge you in the presence of God. That's what what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God. Look at that little phrase, in the presence of God. He is referring to how Timothy will keep the commandment, God's presence. Remember, he he cannot keep it in the flesh, but he can keep it with God's presence because God is the living God. Look with me right after that who gives life to all things. And if he is the living God, then he is the God of the living, which means he is our God, able to keep us holding these things until we see the face of the Lord Jesus. And he gives an amazing example. He gives the Lord Jesus himself as the example who kept this public profession of faith as well. Christ Jesus, who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Remember John chapter 18, Pilate is questioning Jesus in a very public way and in a very historic way. Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my people would be fighting for me. My kingdom is not of this world. He's talking to a day when a kingdom would come and a king would sit on his throne that was better than the day that was happening. And that is the example of the good confession. And Jesus held to it to the very end. Timothy, hold to it to the very end. Christian, hold to it to the very end. Katie, hold to it in the midst of your trial. 
Hold to the confession of faith. Hold to it. Each of you, myself included, remind me to hold to the faith just as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. And it has some connections to it. He says to keep the commandment. And the commandment here, scholars believe, is the commandment that everything that Paul entrusted to Timothy, the faith of the gospel, the entire ministry included, hold on to it. Persevere in it. Because by doing so, you will not only save yourselves, but you will save the listeners that are under your care. There are implications abounding for pastors of the church to hold to these doctrines and to keep the faith and to teach the gospel over and over again. And that's exactly what Paul is doing to Timothy here. And he's telling him, do this without spot and do this above reproach. Without spot obviously refers to Christ who is the spotless lamb. Hold to Christ as the spotless lamb rather than your preferred sin. Hold to Christ above all things. This is an important aspiration for the New Testament writers. Hold these things as possible because Christ has made it possible. Hold these things. Without blame or reproach kind of picks up the language that took place and introduced in chapter 3. Elders and overseers of the church, be above reproach in the ministry of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 2. And then for all the church people in, in chapter 5, verse 7, so that we may be without reproach. We would be above reproach. We hold the faith because he is coming again. And we are to do so diligently, vigilantly, every single day. And we're able to do that because the presence of God is with us. And Paul motivates Timothy by sharing with him a reminder that the appearing of our Lord is coming. Appearing is where we get our word epiphany from. It's a sudden manifestation of all hidden divinity. It will appear in a moment. Timothy, are you ready to welcome the Lord back to earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? This, with the presence of God in you, and the coming of Christ upon you, are you ready to welcome him to the earth. Hold these things diligently so that you can be faithful in your quest to be the pastor that you have been called to be. My question for us is, if that was Paul's motivation for Timothy, what's your motivation to hold to the faith? Why is holding to the faith important to you? Is there something to gain from it? Paul continues his motives as to why holding the faith is important. Look with me in verse 15. Which he may, be, may display at the proper time. Paul goes into this beautiful doxology, this burst of praise as he's thinking about the coming of the Lord and it serves as the primary motivation for Timothy and for the church at Ephesus and for us today to hold to because listen to how he describes the one who is coming. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the one who is coming. We hold the faith because this is the one who is coming. The one who allowed us to approach the light because of the atonement of Christ. 
the one who has allowed us to recognize that he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, the one to trust in who is the only sovereign over all of creation. We should enjoy this, Christian. We should enjoy the character and the attributes just described in this text. Is the Spirit of God welling up in us as these things are read and we consider the goodness of our God? Is that our motivation for holding to the faith? It certainly ought to be. Because the one who, des- who described, who is described making us men and women of God, the one whose presence is in us, the one who is coming again, this ought to be the motivation to fight the good fight because we cannot do it in the faith. Therefore, we must receive the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk these things out until we see the face of Jesus. And it's hard. Remember, it's agony at times. It's difficult. But we get to do it together. Look at, very quickly, Paul's closing applications, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good work, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He returns to the idea of the rich as he was talking about at the first part of this chapter. And he's talking about those who had sit under the false teaching of riches for gain, And he's telling Timothy, you must hold on to this faith so that you are able to rightly teach those who might be holding on to something else. You are to teach them that their hope cannot be in the riches of this world, but it must be on something that they cannot see in this very moment, on God who is rich in mercy towards them. The application is the same for us today. We are to set our minds on God. And we can do this because we are men of God and women of God. We don't have to do this in the flesh, but we're able to do it in the presence of God. This is the very core of the gospel. We give in generosity because much has been given to us. You are to do good because much good has been done to you in Christ You are to be rich in good works because rich works have been given to us in Christ. We are to be generous and ready to share because Christ has been generous and ready to share with us even when we were alienated and hostile in mind. He did these things, so we do these things. Sacrifice is at the very core of the gospel. We do not indulge, we sacrifice. Final exhortation, verse 20, O Timothy Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble. Flee irreverent babble, contradictions, and what falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Church, the application is very simple. We are to fight the good fight of the faith. We are to hold the things that are given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we're able to do it because he allows us to do it through his presence. The fact that he has called us from darkness and into his marvelous light. This is significant, but it's not just to hold on to the faith. It's also to strengthen the brother and sister next to you in the faith, to disciple one another, to proclaim these things one to another, to hold to these things together. Whether we're participating in the Lord's Supper or we're walking in a discipleship group, 
We're bearing burden, whatever that looks like. We are to take these things. We're to walk out the faith. We're to flee sin together. We're to fight the good fight. Hold to the faith, the eternal life that's been given to us in the Lord. And we get to do that together. I will always belong to my father. I, uh, I have his name, have his blood. And never did I apply the application of who I was or whose I was based on a fear that I would no longer be his. But the times that I did apply it to my life, it's because I loved my dad. And he provided for me and he cared for me. As much as my dad has blessed me, what he has done has paled in comparison to what Christ has done for us. We remember who he is who we are and who, whose we are. And he is most definitely worth it. He has given us everything in Christ, seated us in the heavenly places according to the book of Ephesians. That doesn't even make sense. But he has done these things. In a few minutes, we're going to have some pastors down here. Um, and if you have not made the Lord Jesus Christ Savior of your life by professing him in faith, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. I'd urge you to do that. There is nothing that you could do that is more life-giving than holding to the one who gives you eternal life, who can make you a man of God or a woman of God. If you're a Christian, continue the race. Fight the fight of faith. This is a charge to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. It's a charge to us to fight the good fight of faith. And the way that you fight has implications on your neighbor and how your neighbor sees the gospel. Please bow your head with me as we go to the Lord. Consider these things today. Consider what has been provided for you in Christ You don't have to walk in the flesh anymore. You're able to flee these things. You're able to take hold to that which is truly life. And in so doing, we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, the text we just read said. Because the best way to live faithfully today is to live for another day when the Lord Jesus is coming again. The only way to live faithfully today is to live for another day when the Lord Jesus is coming again. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the charge given to us in Scripture to fight the good fight of faith. Father, we recognize our weakness. Father, would you help our fears? Father, I'm admittedly fearful of fighting well tomorrow. Father, I'm sure others are as well. God, thank you for your word that reminded us that you've called us man of God, woman of God. We can do this in your presence. Father, would you keep us 
as we keep the command that you've given to us, all that you've entrusted to us in the gospel. Father, encourage our hearts today. Father, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that Jesus came and he died. He atoned for our sin because it had to be atoned for, Lord. There is no eternal life apart from him. Father, it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.